Thank you, sir. Okay. Good morning, saints. Oh, man, come on. That's so weak. Y'all been doing all that praise and they'll give me that little weak. Good morning, saints. It's good to be with you today. Uh, it's my privilege to be with you again. And uh, I really believe in you as students. I want you to know that. But I also want you to know that you have a great responsibility that lies upon your shoulders for the future. There's still much work to be done. We're looking at uh, Black History Month. Uh, Father God, we ask that uh, you just empower this word, Lord, that you would uh, need upon the hearts of your people. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Know the past. Shape the future. Knowing the past is uh, quite a challenge because there are very painful things in the past uh, that many times we would like to overlook or we would like to lay to rest and tell people simply to move on. Uh, it's a new day. But as I speak around the country and as I speak to a lot of young people in high schools, people of uh, different ethnicities, especially African-American uh, young people, I'm finding out that there's still a lot of people that are hurting even in our younger generations. And that after I finish speaking, they come up crying, they come up talking about their stories, they come talking about the challenges that they have even as young people in America. So it's not just us baby boomers that are wrestling with issues, and I feel like I am uniquely qualified uh, to speak on this issue. I'm from Thibodeau, Louisiana, uh, 55 miles southwest of New Orleans, uh, grew up drinking from colored fountains, going through uh, colored entrances, seeing my father have to go through back doors to get his children a sandwich, being called names, uh, and so on and so forth. So I know what that's like, and I know the scarring that it places upon an individual soul. And like Bill said, I'm a therapist myself. I'm over 60 years old, and I'm still wrestling with the scars uh, that were inflicted upon me in growing up in such an environment. The future of America, I'm saying to students, will be no brighter than our students of today. And we must realize that there can be no better future than what we personally and collectively determine for that future to be. If you don't know your history, you cannot know your destiny. And I'm sad to say many of our African-American young people don't know their history. Because they don't know their history, they will never know their destiny. And we say, well, why do we need a Black History Month? Well, when I was coming up in school, we were not taught about the great heroes and the contributions that African-Americans uh, made to this country, like Dr. Ralph Bunch and many other people. Uh, when we read the Bible, we thought Ethiopians were white people. No black people in the Bible. But we know now that that's not true, that the Hamitic race is really uh, major contributors to biblical history. And I want to start off in the book of James, if I may. So I'm going to go through uh, 398 years of history in about 20 minutes. James 1, verse 22. It said, do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Now, the thing about deception is you don't know you're deceived until somebody come and tell you you're deceived. Do what it says. And anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like a man who looks at his face in a mirror. And after looking at himself, goes away and immediately forget what he looked like. Being a pastor for 36 years and a missionary pastor, I realized that in the church we talk so much about stuff we actually think we're doing it. We have voluminous books on discipleship. We have seminars on discipleship. We have seminars on leadership. 
And yet, we are lacking in leadership, we're lacking in discipleship, and when I ask people, how many disciples do you have, you know what the usual answer is? None. But the man who looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom, in verse 25, and continues to do this, not forgetting what he has heard, but doing it, he will be blessed in what he does. You know, realizing that John Calhoun and Jefferson Davis, who was the first and only president of the Confederacy, and John Calhoun, who was the seventh vice president of the United States, said, slavery is for the common good. Slavery is not only good for the master, but slavery is good for the slave. Now, if you were a slave, you would uh, unequivocally disagree with that statement. And I went down last uh, year for Mardi Gras, and I I grew up on pl- playing on plantations and so on and so forth, but I took my family on a plantation tour. And I have an 11-year-old daughter. Now, all these years of ch- child playing on plantations and stuff, I'd never been on the plantation tour. So we went on this tour, and this uh, little short white lady, and she was really cool, she said, we're not going to uh, tell you what other plantations tell you about how benevolent the slave masters were to the slaves. We're going to tell you the real deal about what happened to slaves. And boy, she was really knowledgeable, and she took us around. And man, I tell you, I heard the voices of those slaves crying from the ground saying to me, don't let people forget what we have been through for them to be who they are today. And I intend to do that. And as I realized in, in, in coming uh, into a realization that in 1866 there was a massacre in my own hometown called Thibodeau in 1866. My grandmother was born in 1867. And, and, and I'm looking at this and, and I'm listening to my grandmother and she can speak the language of slaves. And I'm wondering why these people never told us about this massacre. And I found out, and there's a book called The Thibodeau Massacre, if you're interested in reading about it. The very ground that I used to play football on is a mass grave of blacks who were murdered by folks in Thibodeau. And we were never told that. And here I am, my age, just finding out about it. And so I think what happened was the old folks sought to protect us from the harms, the danger, and the scarring that would come from transmitting those stories to us as young people. And I tell you, today, we still have a lot of issues that we must deal with. I just got back from the Sankofa journey. Uh, Myself and 30 other pastors interracially connected. We had to have a, uh, a road buddy who was white. Right? So we had white and black pair. A great trip, ordained of God, was the best conversation I've had with white folks in my life. These pastors weren't interested in being experts on black people. You know, sometimes we talk to people and they say, no, you don't feel like that. Let me tell you how you really feel. They weren't experts. They were actually interested in listening to our stories. They were actually interested in empathizing with us and standing in our shoes. And one of the great challenges that we have when we talk about slavery and its impact upon the African-American today, we often run into this thing called white guilt. In other words, you say something and the first thing is, uh, I wasn't there. And then they go into pontificating about how I'm not guilty and I can't be held accountable for what my folks did. And you're right. You're right. But let me say this, slavery was not an individual sin only. It is a national sin that must be repented of. 
And you are a part of that repentance. Why? Because we're to confess our faults one to another. And I say to people, and blacks may take me to task for this, but I said sometimes in life when something has been taken from you, it has to be given back by somebody who looks like the person who took it from you. And growing up in Louisiana, I had white nuns and, and priests who spoke into my life who counteracted all the negativity about who I was as a person. So there's one side of me saying that you're nothing, you're nobody, you'll never be anybody, you're inferior. And here I have these whites on this side saying you can accomplish anything you want to in life. We're going to teach you. We're going to give you an excellent education. We're going to give you understanding of what it takes to be successful. And you can be who you want to be because we believe in you. And so on this side, I had the white folks saying you're nothing. On this side, I had the white folks saying you can do it. And man, I think I turned out all right. We got to get to the real conversations in the church today. We are in churches where people are hurting, not only people of African-American descent, but there are more poor white people, twice as many poor white people as there are black people. Y'all not hearing me. And they're hurting just as much. We at Union Gospel Mission, we're dealing with people from all kinds of backgrounds that have been pummeled by life. And I tell people growing up in the South, one of the greatest Injuries inflicted upon my soul was being invisible. That is one of the greatest pains you can inflict on a human soul. And then when people see you, you're walking down the street and there's this ugly white girl walking this way. She crosses to the other side of the road as if I want her anyway because I, I think she's pretty ugly. I'm just being real with y'all. I'm just being real. But it does something to your soul when people are stepping away from you and don't even know who you are. They've assumed that you want to do harm. They assumed that you're a miscreant. They assume that you're a person that doesn't have character. God is saying to our nation that we must repent. It says in James, continuing James 1, it says, look. The wages you have failed to pay the workman. This is the word of God I'm reading. The wages you have failed to pay the workman who moved your fields are crying out against you. Remember I said when I was on that plantation, I heard slaves crying, their voices crying from the ground. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered innocent men who were not opposing you. These are the sins of a nation. February 4th, 1846, Alabama launches convict leasing in West Tumka State Penitentiary to lease inmates to private businesses. And if you read Michelle Alexander's book, The New Jim Crow, you'll see about the privatization of prisons today where they're looking to have free labor 2.3 million people in prison, and about a million of them are African-American. Not only that, 820,000 are on parole, and a whopping 3.8 million are on probation. So you're talking about a couple of million people who get out of prison. We're saying be uh, responsible, but they can't vote. They can't get jobs. They can't get housing. They can't even get food stamps. So how are you going to feed your kids if you get out of prison and you can't get a job 
and you can't get food stamps, what are you going to do? A man's going to do what he's got to do. He's going to go back to crime. Y'all not hearing me. We say we paid the debt to society, but folks will get out of prison and they keep paying the debt for the rest of their lives. So where's the church in all this? God is a God of justice. These things are not just. These things are wrong, and it creates a caste system in America that people cannot get out of. And then we fulminate against other countries and tell them how they need to rectify what they're doing when we have millions, millions languishing away in the prison house. God help us. Another instance, out of 67,000 mortgages given out to World War II veterans, 100 were given to non-whites when they got out of the service due to the practice of discrimination. This is one of the factors that explains the disparity of aggregate generational wealth that we see today. And so if you've been an individual that has not been given the privilege of prospering in society, and you've been seen as a second-class citizen, and you've been seen as inferior, and you get an inferior education, and you can't get gainful employment, you will be stuck in poverty the rest of your natural life. 40% of children in poverty will never, ever get out of it today. That's pretty serious. I said, where's the church? James says, 2 verse 8, if you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself and do the thing that is right. February 6, 1902, Kentucky mob of 200 whites took a 19-year-old Negro boy, Thomas Brown, from jail, lynched him on the courthouse lawn, no conviction. February 7, 1904, Doddsville, Mississippi, Negro named Luther Holbert, and there's names to these folks been lynched. An unidentified Negro woman were tortured, mutilated, and burned alive in front of 600 picnicking spectators. No conviction. And when you look at some of these pictures, it's pictures of church folks just come from church. Y'all not hearing me. Church folks just coming from church, eating hot dogs with their children at a lynching. And so what about the pain of the African-American where, where does that pain get excised? Where does that multi-generational transmission of suffering and affliction go? The lady was telling us when we were on one of the tours, it said on the slave ships, the Atlantic is the greatest graveyard in the world. Some 11 million died in there. Folks jumping off of ships because they didn't want to be slaves. And they said 350 years later, the sharks still swim the same route as the slave ships because there were so many bodies tossed abroad. Somebody said, help me, Jesus. Little boy, 14 years old, Emmett Till, August 1955, money, Mississippi, taken out of his house for whistling at a white woman. Got him out of his house late in the morning, 2, 3 o'clock in the morning, took that boy out beat him up, made him carry a heavy fan to the Tallahassee River, gouged his eyes out, tortured him, shot him in the head, and threw him in the Tallahatchie River. You say, oh, my God, how do we as Christians deal with forgiveness in these kinds of instances when the pain is cumulative, 
What that means is that people are reacting today and people are wondering about the seething anger that they see in aspects of the population of our country and they're wondering where it comes from. Let me tell you where it comes from. It comes from micro and macro injuries over time. It's cumulative injury over time. It's not just one instance of something that people feel is unjust. It's a couple of hundred years of injustice that continues to be perpetrated, and the heart says, are we ever going to get any justice? God is a God of justice. He's a God of right. And you know what I'm glad about? I'm not an angry black man. I love my brothers. I love my white brothers. I love my white sisters because I'm my brother's keeper because I'm my brother's brother. Understand what I'm saying. When Jesus comes, he works a work in a man's heart. I marvel at black people that black people are not running around with machetes and stuff every day. I marvel that black people are still in existence after all that we've gone through. It's a miracle of God in my book. It's a miracle of Almighty God that we know something about how to behave ourselves in the family because in slaves, you didn't have a family. Folks were taken away from you. Your children were taken away from you and so on and so forth. And as I read about these things, I'm determined that the church becomes a formidable force in the conversation about what our nation needs today. And we will not know what our nation really needs today unless we're willing to go back to the past so that we can shape the future. Huh? I already said, if you don't know where you come from, you will never know where you need to go. You will never see the hurt in people's lives that are cumulative. You won't see the multi-generational transmission processes where the mother is on welfare, the mother's mother is on welfare, and the grandmother is on welfare. Why? Because it's been passed down from family to family, and it's not been interrupted by those that have the ability. But the church as a whole, we have the answer. Turn to somebody and say, we have the answer. We have the answer. We have the answer. Then why are we so quiet? You know, people in America like fads. We like to march on the latest fad. But I think we need to do some marching for people who really need our voices. Who really, and, and it's beyond color now. Because the reality is some of y'all are going to be living with y'all parents. Oh, it got quiet. <laughs> small businesses are closing faster than small businesses are open for the first time in the history of the United States. The GDP, if it goes down, you know what that means? Less jobs, less availability of jobs. What are people crying for today? Jobs. But let me tell you, 38% of people working every day are the working poor. There's more month than money. They're working full-time jobs and still can't make it. Now, how would you feel if you came to Great North Central University, got your degree, got out, can't find gainful employment? Mm, mm, mm. Mom, I think I got to move back in. I can't find anything out here. So although you don't think these patterns is impacting you, it's impacting you now because we have more young people returning home to live with their parents than ever before. What kind of America do you want to live in? 
What kind of America do you want for your future? Unless you shape it, you will not have it. And so you have to be motivated. You have to be willing to get out here and do what is necessary. Martin Luther King 50 years ago said, but the church as a whole has been all too negligent on the question of civil rights. It has too often blessed the status quo that needed to be blasted and reassured a social order that needed to be reformed. In other words, God is saying to the church, we must repent. Because if we stand by passively while these injustices go on, we become partakers of that injustice. I'm just trying to help. Anyone then, James says, who knows to do good and does not do it, to him it is sin. Could it be that we're in sin? 325 children from 1983 to 2003, children were put to death under the death penalty. And all of them were children of color. Imagine that. People don't even know about this stuff. Not until 2005 did the Supreme Court judge that children under 18 could not be put to death in the electric chair or by injection. I'm not talking about 50 years ago. You think there's a cause for us as Christians? Dr. King goes on to say, 1967. So the church must acknowledge its guilt, its weak and vacillating witness. You say, hmm, 50 years ago. Isn't it amazing how the church has been silenced? Isn't it amazing that the local church used to be the place where people gathered to get information, to go out into the community and raw change in that community? Now church is the place we come to get to feel better so we can get out to go play on our video games and feel more better. But we got more better blues. I'm concerned as a pastor for 36 years about the church today. I was down and another lady was uh, taking us around a church. She said, I ask young people all the time, what is their idea of church? They said, if these young people say if they could have church, they would come and it would always be really casual. Church would be 45 minutes and the pastor wouldn't be more than 40 years old. Now, this is thousands and thousands of youngsters. What's the problem with that picture? You remove people that have been where young people are going, and young people then don't know where they're going or how they're going to get there. Hear what I'm saying. And even today in the African-American movement, he's, he, the devil is speaking to young people saying, y'all don't need those old folks. They don't know what's going on, but they don't realize we've been where they're going. They don't realize we have a bit of wisdom that can help them to avoid the pitfalls that we fell into. They don't realize that this is simply not about race. This is about humanity. These are human rights issues that we as the people of God must get involved in. We are the called. We are the salt of the earth. I don't ever remember God saying that to unbelievers. Say, so the church must acknowledge its guilt as weak and vacillating witness. It's all too frequent failure to obey the call to servanthood. And let me say this. God told me to say to you, there's some of you called to the pastorate, but you're pursuing something else. And he's saying, pursue the pastorate. You know why? Because we need pastors, shepherds after God's own heart. 
Today, because so many Christians don't know the Word of God, motivational speaking is misinterpreted as preaching. We need pastors who will shepherd the flock of God, who will lay down their lives, who are not interested in being seen and being known. Not in worldly sense anyway, but being known in hell, as the Apostle Paul was. Today the judgment of God is upon the church for its failure to be true to its mission. And if the church does not recapture its prophetic zeal, it will become an irrelevant social club without moral or spiritual authority. Fifty years ago this was written. Fifty years, you say, is the judgment of God upon the church? I believe it is, but the church doesn't know it. Why do we know, those of us that are seeking God? Because the average Christian does not know the Word of God. And if the average Christian does not know the Word of God, the average Christian cannot know the God who reveals himself in that Scripture. And so we end up with a caricature of God, this God who is simply a God of love. But God is much more than love. God is holy. God is a God of virtue and justice and honor. God will in no wise acquit the guilty. And so many times we as a church, we want to go out and hand out a few tracts, but that's not what people are looking for. People are looking for commitment. We're trying to get people to our churches, and that's the problem. We need to stop getting people to church and get them to Jesus. The church has never saved, never will save. There's only one name under heaven given among men whereby men will be saved, and that's the name of Jesus of Nazareth. The prophets came to Israel and told them that God has a controversy with you. They say, oh, God can't have no controversy with us. Look, we're doing better than we ever did. We got thalls are full. We got all kinds of cattle. We got our crops are just proliferating. And the prophets say, yeah, okay. That's where we make a mistake. We look around and we think prosperity is a sign of favor and righteousness with God. Never has been, never will be. Look how my church growing. What's it growing with? Tears of wheat. Because if the word of God is not really being preached as it should, people then can't find their way home to the Savior who is calling them through the efficacy of the word that he has given us so we might not get lost along the way. Even in the midst, I am utterly, utterly hopeful. I am so optimistic, more optimistic than I've ever been. Being with my white brothers on that Sankofa trip let me know that there's hope and that if we can be that phalanx like the Greeks and the Romans and we can get together and stomp this devil and run over the gates of hell, we will let the nation know that God is still alive and he is yet with us. God bless you. Thank you for having me with you. I love being with you guys. Amen. Father, thank you for bringing Dr. Morgan to North Central and this message that all of us need to hear. God, those of us who need to say, God, help us to understand better the sufferings and difficulties of our brothers and sisters. Help us. And those, God, who represent this very difficult past, thank you that your strength is here to redeem us. And we ask, God, that you will bless as we move forward to be leaders in this world that bring reconciliation, the loss to Christ. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.